Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey listeners, Sarah Archer and I wrote a book together. That's right, we decided to try co-writing because uh, several authors who appeared on the show had written books uh, with other authors and we thought it'd be fun to give it a try. And we did, and we took on uh, this thing called podcasting. It's really because podcasting is such a dangerous business, I guess. Anyway, here's our elevator pitch for Death by Podcasting. Podcast co-hosts raspy fuse and salty remarks receive an anonymous text. One of the three author guests you plan to interview Tuesday night intends to kill you both. Is it egotistical poet William Z. Wisp, sexy romance author Della Molasses, or tightly wound thriller writer Edwin Nocturne? Raspy and Salty must unravel the plot before it's too late, but if they can't, their sense of humor and wordplay will be all they have left to avoid death by podcasting. Uh, thanks to several people who blurbed the book. Uh, Jennifer Ruff, a USA Today bestselling thriller mystery author, said this clever comedic mystery will keep you guessing until the final revelation. Bobby Nash, award-winning author of the Snow Thriller series, says it's a unique cocktail that's pure fun from start to finish. And Nora Gaskin, a wondering author of The Worst Thing, says if you binged only murders in the building and are feeling withdrawal pangs, you need death by podcasting. Uh, and we need you to uh, go out there and order it for the whopping price of $2.99. It's an ebook, And when you do, it'll support the podcast. It's also available in print and audiobooks, so you can check those out as well. Hey, readers and writers. Welcome to episode 366 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words and where reading and writing topics take center stage. I'm your co-host, Sarah Archer, and I'm here today with Amber Smith to talk about her new YA novel, The Way I Am Now, which examines how to move forward from trauma in life and in love. Uh, this book is the sequel to Amber's New York Times bestselling debut, The Way I Used to Be, and we're going to talk about the sort of unusual journey that that book has taken, how it became a bestseller twice, and how cultural changes have impacted the writing of the sequel. Um, we've got a lot to talk about and discuss, so I'm excited to dive in. Amber, thanks for being here. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, these. I was just telling you, I, I loved reading both of these books so much, and there's a very interesting backstory with the, the new book, The Way I Am Now, and why you ended up publishing a sequel to The Way I Used to Be. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what happened with the first book and how you came to write a sequel and the role that social media played in all of that? Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting journey. Um, so the first book, The Way I Am Now, came out in 2016. And, um, you know, it always sort of had like a, a small but dedicated following. Um, but over the last couple of years, um, it has really kind of uh, re-entered the, the public awareness, I guess you would say, um, especially via TikTok. And um, so th- this entire year, now seven years after the book was published, it has been back on the New York Times bestseller list again for the past nine months. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think a big part of that is, um, 
you know, a lot of what we've been experiencing these past several years in society, um, not only the Me Too movement, which was, you know, really happening kind of the year after my book originally came out, um, but also more recently, all of the censorship that we've been seeing, book bans, things like that, there's just a lot of efforts to silence voices right now and to silence books that are talking about the, the tough issues. Um, and in, in the case of these two books, that would be sexual assault. And um, I think readers have been seeing that and feeling that, you know, in daily life. And they really want to talk about these issues and explore them. Um, and a really great way to do that is is through books that address these issues. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I know, I believe that these books, or at least the first one has been banned in several places, right, for talking about controversial issues? It has, yes. How at least uh, two states that I know of. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah, that, that's crazy. I mean, how for you as an author, how do you feel about that? How does that impact you in your writing? Well, I'm not sure it necessarily impacts my writing very much, but um, it's definitely problematic. And I think a lot of times, um, or at least, you know, in the past, having your book banned was sort of seen as like this badge of honor kind of thing, or it was like cool or something. Mm -hmm. But um, I think with how widespread we're seeing all this censorship, it's just it's actually just really sad and um, it, it it actually just is taking books away from, from young people who might really need them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. It's like, if we're not talking about these issues, how are people going to know um, or be able to even think about them in their own heads and have that dialogue with themselves and be able to grapple with their own experiences? Because banning the books doesn't ban the real life experiences. You know, these are still things that people deal with. And so we need to be able to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I just always remember when I was a young person, I I really needed those books that talked about the tough issues and the more difficult subjects in life. And those are the books that actually really helped me to get through. And they made me feel seen and understood and less alone. Mm-hmm. And, I just feel like it's such a disservice to young people to rob them of that kind of experience to have empathy, not only for themselves, but for other people. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I'm sure some of our our listeners are, you know, readers, writers themselves who would like to help take a stand against book banning and censorship. Are there things that we can be doing to try to help fight that battle that you're aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think... The most um, impactful things we can be doing is, you know, acting locally, showing up at school board meetings and places where these books are being challenged in public forums mm-hmm. and to just um, show up and, and voice our concerns and our opinions. 
Yeah, that's so important. Um, well, I know you mentioned The Way I Used to Be came out in 2016. I assume you started writing it probably at least a few years before that. Um, so a lot of time has passed between when you wrote the first book and now writing the sequel. And as you mentioned, there are so many things that have kind of changed in our society in those intervening years that really affect or that relate to topics that you touch on in the books. You know, things like sexual assault, consent, gender and sexual identity, um, mental health, trauma, so many of the issues that you that you touch on. Do you feel like the way that you um, approached or wrote about some of those things was different in the way I am now versus the way I used to be? Or have you seen different reactions from readers about some of those issues? Um, yeah, you know, I think my approach um, in writing the sequel was very different um, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that was mostly pertaining to kind of where I was coming from in relation to the book. And um, as far as inspiration and influences. So, I mean, that first book, I started writing that book more than a decade ago. And for me, it was really um, inspired by just a lot of personal experiences um, as a survivor, as well as someone who has just known so many people who um, who have struggled with abuse or rape or tra- or any kind of trauma, really. And so that book was really about um, learning how to stand up for yourself and use your voice. And as I was writing the second book, this is post the Me Too movement, and I had been wanting to write a sequel for a long time. I just wasn't quite sure what the story would entail. And I was really influenced by... um, by the readers of the first book, actually, um, and a lot of the questions that I have received over and over again over the years, um, asking, you know, what happens next? Will there be a mm-hmm. sequel? Will Eden find justice? Will her friends and family understand what what she's been through? And probably the most frequent question I get is, will she reconnect with that one special guy, Josh, who she, mm-hmm. who she loved. And so as I was writing this book, um, I was thinking about all of those questions and really um, thinking about how to answer them in, in our post-MeToo world, what healing and justice and love can look like. Yeah, and I think um, having read both books, I think readers will be very pleased with all of the uh, all of the new information that you've given them about Eden and Josh. Um, I know I was after because even for me, like after reading the first book, there were there were all these cliffhangers, and I was like, I want to know more. <laughs> so I'm glad that you wrote a sequel. Um, and also, just I mean, in terms of like your relationship as an author with the characters, you've lived with these people for years now in your head. You wrote the books mm-hmm. over an extended time period. You cover a fair amount of time in the books too, from when Eden is a freshman in high school, and then you take her into college in the new book. Um, do you feel like the way that you think about any of your characters has changed from when you were writing the way I used to be to the way I am now? Yeah, it definitely has. Um... Yeah, as you've said, I've sort of lived with these characters in my head for for the past decade. And um, I, I sort of always, uh, I never felt like Eden's story was over. Um, so I really have thought about her a lot over the years. 
And um, when I was writing that first book, um, I did intentionally leave an open-ended end to the book. And I did that because at the time when I was turning in my final draft, probably early 2015, um, I couldn't bring myself to write an ending to Eden's story that was less than she deserved, but I also couldn't write something that I didn't feel could really happen in, in real life. So, um, so it left off with a hope and, um, that sort of, uh, question or that hope or wish has always sort of been rolling around in the back of my mind, even as I've worked through subsequent books. Um, and I've always thought I would come back to her story at some point. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. Not to give spoilers, but you know, towards the end of the first book, you do see Eden take a stand against her her perpetrator, her abuser. Um, but then we know that's definitely not like just a happy, neat ending with a a bow wrapped around it. Um, And in this book, we get to see a lot more of like how she actually deals with um, the mental health system, the the health system, the criminal justice system, how all of that sort of works around the process of handling sexual assault. Were there certain um, issues that you wanted to explore there as far as like the the real life criminal justice system and how we treat sexual assault as a society? Yeah, definitely. And and you're right, that first book was really about Eden finding the courage to use her voice and stand up for herself. And the second book, I really wanted to take that a step further to explore what you do with your voice after you found it. And so a lot of the research I did um, for the second book uh, pertained to mental health, researching trauma and PTSD, and also looking really closely at a lot of these um, big court cases that we've seen happen, sexual assault cases um, that we've seen in the media these past several years. Um, and so those were definitely sources of inspiration for me as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It all felt very like this. these are real people and this could really be happening today. Um, and it's interesting just in terms of like sort of the process of how this book came to be, you're just by coincidence, the second author I've talked to this fall, who's had sort of a similar experience. Like I, I interviewed, uh, Michael Thomas Ford recently, who had, um, a YA book, Suicide Knows, which came out, I think about 15 years ago, um, and, and did well at the time. And now again, through social media and especially through TikTok and BookTok has found a, a new audience. Now he has a sequel coming out. Um, and, and he and I talked some about how sort of social media is changing the publishing landscape and allowing readers or maybe at least certain communities of readers to have more say in what gets published and which authors get the megaphone at the moment and how publishers are kind of looking um, for people. What sorts of changes do you see coming out of the impact of social media on publishing and with TikTok and BookTok especially, are there things that you think are positive? Or are there things that you think are negative about the, the impact of that? Um, I think it's it's all been really positive um, from my perspective anyway. It has 
basically brought in an entirely new generation um, of readers who are who are interested in in my work and um, and not just me, but as you said, many other authors are seeing this sort of like resurgence of interest in books that have been out for quite a while. And um, I think this the book talk platform is really amazing because it's sort of like um, just our modern day word of mouth. You know, people mm-hmm. are able to have a platform and talk about books that have meant something to them and um, start, you know, sparking really important conversations. So I think it's it's wonderful, and I think that publishers. Um, have definitely been taking note of that and really uh, listening to what readers want. Yeah, and I think that's all very true. And it's also just, it allows such a direct connection between the author and the reader, which was harder to get in the past. And um, I'm sure that especially with books that they hit very hard emotionally what you write. (laughs) The characters, I I think people get very close to and you're dealing with real life issues that a lot of people grapple with in one way or another. I mean, do you do you hear a lot of reactions from readers as far as what these books mean to them personally? I do. And I think this that's probably one of the most rewarding parts of all of this is just getting to hear responses from readers. And um it's interesting. I sort of ha- have heard a whole range of responses, um, both from people who have experienced rape and abuse um, and other issues that we see in the book, but also from people who haven't. And um, I think both of those are really powerful, powerful things to be able to um, connect with people on. So, I mean, one response I hear a lot is, uh, wow, I, this book was really eye-opening, and it makes me wonder if maybe I've missed something, missed mm-hmm. some signs that someone in my life has gone through something, um, some kind of abuse or trauma. And so I think that is a really valuable thing to come away with. And then on the other side, um, I also hear from readers who have read um, the first book the way I used to be, and it helped them to process their own trauma or um, helped them to speak up and and come out about um, sexual assault or other um, types of abuse that have happened to them. And that is the most powerful thing to me because I really aim to um, help people feel not alone in their experiences. And I think um, even though, you know, it's fiction, um, I think people who are reading can feel as though there's someone in the world who understands them, even if it is a fictional character, Eden has come to, I think, represent something very real for people. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that that kind of reality of it and the authenticity is something that your readers probably appreciate, that you respect them enough to, to go there and be real about it, even though um, you write for younger audiences, YA and MG, but you really don't shy away from the kind of darker, grittier, or more difficult issues in your books. Um, and you, you sometimes weave in kind of a romance element, but it still feels 
real. It's not sort of soft or unrealistic. Like even when Eden and Josh meet in the first book, it's not like a kind of a cutesy meet cute where it's like, oh, we just bump into each other and it's so awkward. Like there's there's real tension <laughs> in their relationship right from the beginning and real issues that they have to deal with um, in their own lives and together. And so I'm wondering, how do you kind of balance that writing for a younger audience um, thinking about kind of their needs at the age that they're at and maybe having some of those fun or comedic or romantic elements, but then also tackling real issues and dark issues head on. How do you strike that balance in your writing? Yeah, that, that balance is something I've definitely been very conscious of as I write. Um, I definitely uh, think it's so important to portray those difficult truths and those more, um, you know, tough issues in my books, because, um, you know, this is the reality that we are all living in, young people included. And um, I think it's just so important to address these things rather than to kind of um, shelter uh, young people from these things, because the fact is, they are dealing with these tough issues every single day already. And, um, but yes, I really, I always try to balance out the darkness with um, some element of light. And so in this new book, the romance element is really front and center. So it's, this book is actually told from the alternating points of view of Josh and Eden. And I wanted to explore, um, you know, healing and trauma and justice, but through the lens of their relationship. And um, I think one of my main goals in this book, the new book, was to show that, you know, love is not perfect. Love Um, love isn't going to be the thing that rescues us from our lives, but it is something that can heal us. And, um, you know, both Eden and Josh are coming into this relationship, each with their own baggage and own trauma. And I really wanted to show um, what healing can look like through through trauma and and that life continues but um you know healing from trauma is also an ongoing process as well yeah yeah I can totally see that and I think that whether readers are drawn to it by the romance angle or by um kind of the the mental health or trauma angle they'll find something in there that they can relate to or they can um that feels satisfying to them they can take away Um, And I have some other questions for you, but I would love to have you first read us a little bit from the book. Do you have a passage that you can share with us? As the the book opens, four months have passed between the ending of the first book and the start of the new book. And so Eden and Josh um, haven't really been in touch much. And um, sort of their lives have had to kind of continue on while being while their relationship has sort of been up in the air and and uncertain and so this scene comes from the beginning of the book 
when they have um, just by chance run into each other at a concert in their hometown, a concert that neither of them particularly wanted to go to, but was sort of dragged to by their friends. And so they've been, uh, they've sort of ditched their friends and are outside just trying to catch up. And, um, and so this scene is from Eden's point of view. <clears throat> it all feels foreign to my body, the laughing, the lightness. It's making me jittery, but in a slightly pleasant, over-caffeinated way. To be with him again, sitting here talking. It feels like I must be making it up, making him up, dreaming or hallucinating or something, because there's nothing I needed more tonight than this with Josh. And God, how I'm not used to getting what I need. So, you seem good, Eden, he says, but his smile is fading. Yeah, I nod, but I can't quite make myself meet his eyes. Mm-hmm, nodding, nodding. You seem good, he repeats, and I sense it's more of a question than an observation, but I'm not ready to let go of the lightness yet. So you've said, I try to keep up this banter that we're so good at, but he studies me, squinting like he's trying to see something in the distance, except he's looking into my eyes. I focus on my hands and not him. Come on, he says softly. What? Are you good, though? He finally asks. I shrug. I mean, sure. I, I'm doing better, I think. I'm not doing a bunch of crazy shit anymore, so there's that. And I hope he knows that by crazy shit, I mean I'm not getting trashed and sleeping around with strangers anymore. Oh, and I quit smoking, I add. Really? He smiles. Congratulations. I'm impressed. Thank you. It sucks. That's not really what I meant, though, he says. I meant, like, how are you? Like, are you okay? It's not like I really have a choice to not be okay, but I'm trying to be, be better, I stutter. Jesus, it's not a hard question, but I can't seem to answer it. Yeah, but how are you actually doing? He's going to make me say it. What? I'm not okay, Josh, I blurt out almost yelling, but then I rein it in. Sorry, but yeah, I'm not. Okay? Okay, he says gently. No, I'm, I'm not trying to argue. It's just that you know you don't ever have to pretend with me. That's all I'm saying. I'm not pretending anything with you, I tell him. You're the only person I don't pretend with, so... Not finishing that sentence. He opens his mouth as if he's about to say something more, but then he suddenly shifts toward me. I think, for a fraction of a second, he's leaning in to kiss me. My heart starts racing, but then he reaches to take his phone out of his back pocket. As he looks at the screen, all I can think is that I would have kissed him back. Again. Always. Even with Steve just inside. Even with Josh's girlfriend existing somewhere. I would have. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit.
It's it's so rewarding to see those characters come back together after they've been apart for a while and readers have been away from them for a while and all of the complicated history in the first book. Um, yeah, I, I think that's wonderful. And you mentioned that in the new book, The Way I Am Now, you alternate perspectives between Eden and Josh, whereas the first book is just in Eden's perspective. How did you decide to to bring Josh's perspective in and give him that first-person point of view in the second book? I had been working on um, what I knew was going to be a sequel for a long time, and it always felt like there was something missing. And I remember um, I was on a, a writing or a writing residency at the Weymouth Center out in South Pines, and I was just feeling so stuck. And I decided I was just going to um, do like a little exercise and try writing um, the story from a different character's point of view. And so I chose Josh because um, you know he was really one of my favorite non-main characters to write through all of my books. And so um, I just started writing um, a little passage from his point of view and immediately it just really clicked and I felt like, okay, I think maybe what has been missing as I've been trying to work on this book is Josh's point of view. And so I started thinking about this book as more of... um, or through the lens of uh, a love story or a romance, rather than um, just from that single point of view of, of Eden's from the first book. Yeah, I think that really adds something here, too. And it, it, that's such a great example, too, of just the power of kind of doing those creative exercises sometimes when you feel stuck, like right in a different point of view, right in a different tense. You never know sort of what you're going to unlock that way. Um, and it, it, it brings such so much richness, I think, to the book here. Um, and one of the things, too, that I, I loved in both of these books and in all of your writing is just all of the how rounded your characters are, the gray areas that you find in them, whether it's Josh or Eden or smaller characters in the background, like their family members, um, even Kevin, who's kind of the antagonist in this these books. Um, you, you still add some humanity to him and some details that give him, uh, that make him not just a villain. Um, do you have tips for other writers on, on ways to think about creating these three-dimensional, well-rounded characters that feel like real people? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the most important things for me when I'm writing any character is that I have to make that leap in my mind um, to not think of them as a fictional person, but to really think of them as a person who exists um, kind of like before and after the story that I'm telling. And um, honestly, a lot of that means that um, there's a lot of writing that will never, ever make it into the book. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of thinking about things and, um, you know, creating backstory that is never actually going to be shown on the page. But I think it somehow comes through in the character, even when we're not explicitly stating, uh, you know, this, this, and this happened. Um, because it, it makes the character feel like a real person. And I think they have to feel real to you, the writer, first, if they're going to ever feel real to anyone else. 
Yeah, that, that's such a good way of putting it. And I love that feeling that you give of sort of dropping us into a slice of life and that these characters were here before the book started and they'll keep going afterwards. And I think one thing that was really interesting to me with the first book is the inciting incident for Eden's journey kind of happens off screen or off page. Like it happens before the book actually starts. And then we pick up with her right in the aftermath of that and see how she's impacted by it, um, which was just such an interesting technique. But it's it's definitely that sort of mentality of like, get into the scene late and leave the scene early. <laughs> um, but we, we <laughs> yeah. have that feeling of, of there's so much happening in these people's worlds that we're not necessarily privy to just by kind of picking up on those little details you throw in. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, it just makes it feel so rich. Um, so this is kind of a, a different topic, but um, AI for writers is obviously like a very, very big thing in the zeitgeist right now and how AI is impacting writers. Um, not to get too into the weeds with that, because we could do a whole other <laughs> podcast on that. But I, I follow you on Instagram, and I think you posted something recently about having seen that um, the way I used to be was used for training AI language modules without your permission. Um, can you talk just a little bit about like how that, how did you feel when you found that out as a writer, knowing that your work was being used in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... Before I realized my book was, you know, one of these, you know, essentially pirated books that was being used, I was just, I felt really like scared about, well, what is going to happen? Like, this is really weird territory that we don't even understand yet. And then um, when I found out that one of my books actually is in this giant um, database, I guess. Um, it honestly, I was not prepared for how much of a violation um, it it felt like, and um, I just I I feel like um, I don't know. I really hope that some laws are going to get passed, and we'll figure out how to navigate this new landscape um, because it is it's even though we aren't calling it this yet it is theft um and you know I just think about the 10 years of my life that I put into just that one book um the way I used to be which um was the one book that was used and then I think about a lot of these other authors who have had their entire bodies of work stolen and um I just feel you know no matter what AI is never going to be able to replace humanity and our experiences and all of that, um, all of, all of the aspects that we pull from our life and our world that go into the writing. I mean, a machine is never going to be able to replicate the heart of that. Um, Mm -hmm. but it, it is very troubling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's such uncharted territory. And I think I know for me and most readers I talk to, we are all a little bit scared of like where all this is going to go in the future. And we just don't know. But you raise a great point that AI can't replicate the kind of human element of it. I mean, they might be able to replicate the cadence of your sentence structure and your writing style. But there's such a personal element to your writing and to that book that was pirated. um, And so much of you that's in there and, and they can't that's something that can't be replaced. Um, and that I think that's what readers really connect to as well. 
Um, and so we talked a little bit about how um, there, there was sort of a somewhat open ending to the first book. Um, you wrap up and answer a lot of questions in the second book, too, that were left open by the first. But even at the end of The Way I Am Now, I felt like I could see room to explore the characters even further as they get older. Do you think that you would ever maybe do a trilogy or write another book in, with these characters? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just can't uh, seem to shy away from like leaving at least like one element or, or so open-ended in all of mm-hmm. my books, actually. Um, and I, I don't know that I'd necessarily want to write another book with these characters. And um, also, I, I feel like um, by the end of the of the second book, you know, they're, you know, Eden is kind of through her first year of college. And, um, I feel like we, in, if we, if I did another book, it would be moving out of the young adult fiction realm and it would be moving more into the adult fiction world. And I don't, I don't think I necessarily want to do that. Although I will never say never because, um, you know, we never know what is going to happen, but that's true. (laughs) Well, if you ever do re- revisit these characters, I'll be here for it. But uh, I understand <laughs> wanting to like leave a little bit, a little bit for them to continue to explore in their lives too. Um, well, before we wrap up, I, I want to ask you a question that we ask most of our most of our authors, which is if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to yourself as a younger writer, maybe when you were starting out writing that first book, mm-hmm. um, what would you want to tell yourself? Oh, if I could go back in time and tell my my younger writer self something, oh, I'm I think it it might be sort of twofold. If I can give kind of two separate answers, so I think I would have told myself to believe in myself more. Um, but then on the other hand, I think I would have advised you really want to find a community of writers because that was something I did not do until after um, my book was getting ready to be published and I felt like I was so late to the game and um, I've ended up making so many really amazing connections and friends in the writing and publishing world and um, I just really wish I would have kind of had the confidence to to start that process sooner so that would that would be my advice to my younger writer self yeah yeah I think that's that's a wonderful point um and having that community I mean it can help you hone your craft by getting feedback from people it can help you kind of learn the industry and just the support too I mean writers need other writers it's it's a kind of journey that I feel like people who don't walk this path as a writer don't totally understand (laughs) so you need to kind of find your tribe of people who are in that world yeah, definitely. Uh, we may be writing our books alone at our computers, mm-hmm. but um, having a book come out in the world involves so many people and such a huge support system, both professionally, creatively, and personally. And um, I really think that's probably one of the most important things. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Well, we're grateful to have you as part of our our community here on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing these books with us and being here. And um, listeners, thank you for being with us here too. And until next time, read on and write on. Thank you.